Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to WORT 89.9 FM, a public affair. I am not Carousel Baird. My name is Yuri Rashkin, but Carousel will be back next week. So make sure to tune in. At that time, of course, but I am excited to join you today because the topic that we're going to discuss today is, I find it fascinating, like really interesting because I'm originally from Russia and this is a topic that seems like a little bit different and part of life that I wasn't familiar with until I got introduced to it. And that is the topic of HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Um, I attended a couple of presentations where in our community, where I live in Beloit, Wisconsin, we have uh, two sisters who are actively engaged in taking students on tours of HBCUs every year. It's a big deal. There's a lot of students who go. Uh, it's an important you know, part of the community. And so when this opportunity to join you here today came up. I thought that this would be a perfect thing to discuss. Actually, I suggested several things, but Jade is uh, our wonderful producer. Thank you, Jade. Uh, made the decision that this is the right one for today, and I couldn't agree with her more. So what are HBCUs, historical black colleges and universities? They're schools that were started for African-Americans between um, 1837 and 1965. And uh, as is cited here uh, on a website from LSU, HBCUs are golden products of the African diaspora and symbols of the strength and resilience of black people. Their rich culture and academic rigor have allowed them to persevere despite continued obstacles, as evidenced by their long list of notable alumni, such as Thurgood Marshall, Spike Lee, Toni Morrison, and U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris. There is no doubt that HBCUs will always be necessary and valuable members of the academic world. I am really excited to be joined on this program, uh, first of all, by uh, my guests, which are amazing because we have with us one of the two sisters who takes students on tours of HBCUs, Michelle Hendricks-Nora, who is administrator at Beloit School District. And uh, I'm super excited that we're also joined by Dr. Melanie Carter, who is Associate Provost and Director at the Center for Research, Leadership, and Policy at Howard University. Um, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, absolutely. And we're also hoping to be joined by our listeners. Our call-in number is 608-256-2001. And um, if perhaps you have a question, uh, perhaps you have a, a child, a student, uh, you yourself may be interested. Who knows? Give us a call, ask us a question. But to begin with, Dr. Carter, can you talk a little bit about significance of uh, HBCUs in, in today's academic landscape? Sure. And I think the statement that you read from, I think you said um, LSU was really an amazing one, a really great introduction. But certainly, as you indicated, HBCU, the term actually is a federal designation, right? So um, it identifies those schools um, founded specifically to educate African-Americans before 1965. And so HBCUs, um, there are about 105 or so. Um, the number changes, <laughs> um, but certainly um these institutions have a rich history of educating um, African-Americans and others. HBCUs have never been restricted to African-Americans, though um, their mission has been to educate those people who were uh, previously enslaved or, or though, even those who certainly had been free, but had limited access um, to education. And in some states, um, and most HBCUs are located in the South, in some Southern states, it was actually illegal for these um, people to have access to education. And so certainly HBCUs have a rich legacy, but also have a very contemporary um, uh, value, to say the least. And certainly you've listed some of the graduates, but also I always say that 
HBCUs, um, most black people uh, in America have been touched by an HBCU, whether they attended one, whether their family members attended, whether they had a doctor or a teacher or aunt or a minister or um, that. So HBCUs and the graduates of HBCUs permeate um, all of our lives in America and have made um, generous, generous, um, a generous contribution. We, we'd like to think about HBCUs and their outsized impact. But you think about um, a little over 100 institutions, which represents about 3% of all higher education institutions in the nation. And you think about the number of graduates and our rich legacy and the, the visibility of, of our graduates and their impact to America. I think it's extremely important. Do you find that current environment is is good for HBCUs? Are they thriving or is this a difficult time for HBCUs? I mean, uh, just depending on the situation in the country, they have become less popular, more popular. What is going on right now in, in your estimation? You know, that's a great question. I think that HBCUs, some people, um, you know, are have said that HBCUs are uh, uh, sort of seeing a resurgence. I don't know if that's true. Certainly um, post-COVID or during COVID, there was a lot of attention. Um, some might argue to HBCUs and certainly we received some um, really monumental um, philanthropic gifts to HBCUs that I think illuminated um, um, some of our institutions. So that's been a good thing. But certainly in this climate today where, you know, certainly people are struggling sort of cultural wars or um, concerns about diversity, et cetera. I think HBCUs have garnered some attention, some positive and some um, not so positive. But one thing we do know is that, you know, the first HBCU was founded in 1837 and we've endured <laughs> and flourished um, throughout all of American's history, America's history. And so I, don't, I have no doubt that we'll continue to do that. So this is a can be viewed as a trying time but also a time of opportunity for HBCUs to continue to demonstrate um, how extremely um, important they are to the um, higher education landscape and to, to our nation and to the world. Um, so, Michelle, you take students every year to HBCUs. You are like the, the champion of HBCUs, <laughs> you know, why? First and foremost, I think it's an opportunity, um, being that we are in Wisconsin, that we need to allow our students to be exposed to, unlike, you know, students that's in the South or either on the East Coast, you know, we talk about different institutions and up here it's like the Big Ten and things like that. But um, myself and my sister were graduate HBCUs due to the fact of, like Dr. Carter mentioned, I was influenced by somebody for HBCU because I had an English teacher in high school that came up from UAPB that was recruited to come teach up here. And she loved her institution. And even back then she talked about how influential it was in her life and what it was. And we were like, we want to understand that too. Like they don't talk about that. You don't know about that in our Wisconsin bubble. And so um, when my sister and I decided to move back home after graduating, we wanted to be able to expose and have the students here have the same experience just to learn about the different opportunities that's out there for them um, with historically black colleges and universities. What, what is a selling point do you feel for students to go, yeah, HBCU is for me? I would say one of the biggest selling points for the students is, um, for our group of students, is being able to surround themselves by people who look like them, that have the same mindset of education, that's involved leadership, that encourage them to do things. And so they're not really, I'm not gonna say isolated, but a lot of times here, um, they find themselves still one of the only people in a classroom or involved in this or on the honor roll, things like that, to be amongst the same peers that have the same goals as them and to have that family environment to say, hey, you know, we are family here, like for real, like I'm not just a number, your teacher might text you and say, why are you not in class? <laughs> Um, and just to have that. And then, of course, just the whole cultural experience of being on the yard and on campus is definitely a selling point. That's great. Um, Dr. Carter, I was thinking historically, if you could speak a little bit about um, just the struggle that, that it has been, uh, you know, with the 
uh, with HBCUs in different schools because as as the uh, time went on from 1837, we didn't have just civil war, but we also had uh, different periods of uh, e extreme uh, uh, struggle, uh, possibly race wars uh, by some definition, like in, you know, summer of 20, uh, 1919. Um, where, how do you see that struggle? How did it help shape what HBCUs are today? Well, you know, we think about the first, as you indicated, HBCU um, beginning in 1837. So that takes us, you know, pre-Civil War or post-Civil War, two world war wars, um, excuse me, um, and a whole bunch of other things, the civil rights movement. I mean, we can go industrialization. I mean, my, I mean, there, I mean, every, when you think about American history, certainly you can map it um, um, by thinking about how um, HBCUs have evolved. And so um, at all those, at all those pressure points, if you will, if we look at, you know, the arc of American history, we can certainly look at how that um, had an impact on HBCUs, just like every other institution. So um, what that meant um, pre-Civil War, when um, most African-Americans were enslaved in America, to um, immediately following the Civil War, when we had um, certainly thousands of newly freed African-Americans looking to be educated, right, through the Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, when in, though free, um, had very limited um access to um, education, K through 12, and certainly higher education as well. And so these institutions, as you think about these institutions and their growth and development, certainly it is very much um, parallel to the experiences of African-Americans writ large in, in the nation, whether we talk about um, HBCUs as institutions or families or churches or all the other kinds of institutions. So there's certainly, um, um, these institutions have been central um, to our own um, development, right? Um, our, our own sense of agency. Um, and so I think that it's difficult. You can't separate um, the history of HBCUs from the history of the nation, but certainly we can chart um, historically how HBCUs have been, um, you know, are integrated in the overall American um, narrative. And in many ways, um, just like other institutions, have helped to push, direct, and guide it in ways that support um, the ascension and the, um, you know, uh, the ascension, I should say, of, of African Americans and the, just the nation at all. Because HBCUs are valuable. We know that. I think that's an old statement. I mean, I don't even talk, like really to talk about relevancy because I think that's clear. But certainly, um, we 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 we've been able to chart in, in a myriad of ways why these institutions are important. Again, not only uh, to African Americans and others, but a whole range of folks who interact with HBCUs. Again, they've never been exclusive institutions, meaning they've been open to everyone. We have diverse students, diverse faculty, diverse staff. Um, they're located in in, in um, urban areas and rural areas. They're small. They're large. They're smaller arts colleges. They're large research universities. And so again, um, they sort of check the box in every way when we think about, um, you know, what America is in just the American uh, journey period. I couldn't agree with you more because it clearly it flows, it flows together. Sure. Um, but what, what I find uh, interesting, I guess, when I found out that uh, when uh, desegregation occurred, that actually it, it hurt HBCUs because students had other opportunities. And so they went, to, you know, they were allowed elsewhere, you know, to some extent that may have uh, didn't help the HBCUs. But now, as I'm looking at all the attacks on DEI, mm -hmm. I'm saying, is this, does this mean that this is opportunity for HBCUs in there, you know? Well, I don't know if desegregation hurt HBCUs. I don't know if that's true. People say that, but I don't know if that's true. Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. One, HBCUs represent about 3% of the overall um, higher education institutions in the nation. There is no way that HBCUs can educate every African-American, right? So therefore, it's very important that African-Americans have access to a full, for the full breadth of institutions. Now, some might argue, just as the case in K-12, through is that there are particular kinds of, of uh, sort of connections in the, the culture of HBCUs or 
places as um, the other guests indicated, where you feel like you're a part of, you see yourself represented. I think those are very important and those, and it's important that people have those experiences. But in terms of enrollment, um, um, we're seeing some enrollment surges, for example, right now at some HBCUs, we're seeing some decline in enrollments. That's also true in higher education. You know, we certainly um, are, will continue to have um, issues with enrollment because we have fewer people in the pool to attend. We have fewer people who are college age, college ready. So all these institutions, all of us in higher education um, have to be concerned about what that means and what that looks like. So although desegregation um, certainly widened the opportunities available to African-Americans, but it also made it's the case that more African-Americans could attend these colleges, could attend college period. Because many, just as um, was indicated earlier, you know, HBCUs are not um, accessible to many people, okay, depending upon where you live and, and so forth. So, the, so um, expanding opportunities for Black people to attend uh, college and universities in their area was a good thing for African Americans. And HBCUs have continued to thrive. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, certainly there are some considerations in terms of what that uh, uh, meant in terms of the kinds, you know, uh, whether we're attracting, you know, all students that we that we had attracted beforehand, but certainly our enrollments, I mean, we continue to flourish, we continue to have students, we continue to graduate students, um, and African Americans and others have access to the full um, complement of American universities. As you can tell I teach history of higher education too, so that's a part of it. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, yeah. That's fantastic. Michelle, your, your thoughts and your experiences, what do you think? No, I, I, I totally agree in that. I think um, it, it was interesting, like for us, just as influence, even that like the media has, even, you know, growing up, we had different TV shows and things like that where they, whether we're subtle or not subtle and like the experiences I think about like a different world in our area was a show that was on that coming from where we are, we was like, where do you go to college? And it's like that, like, what is that? You know, those different things and um, the influence, like she said, it's, it's a variety of schools, whatever meets your needs is there. Like if you want a small school, large school, it's comparable in, in prices. Like we tell people, you know how much it costs to go to Beloit College just right down the street? It's like $60,000 and you you could still go to the same Walmart. Like, so you, you have to do what's right for you and what fits in your, um, what you want for your experience for higher education. But if we don't expose the students to let them know what's out there, that won't even be an option. So I think that's why that's our, our big push because if we don't even let them know that this is, we're, we're limiting their choices and what they know. So that's one of our big pushes over like we're we want to help increase the enrollment but like she said in in the area that we in in the country i think we could do a better job in doing that um especially in some of our smaller towns not like the milwaukee's or the chicago's like they're good <laughs> they have huge representations and alumni associations but even with like college fairs and things like that um so even in a local college fair this year um in our school we had a table for hbcus because um it was during holiday break. So like my son and then his friends, they were home and they all go to different schools. And so we had them represent, but even to start to do things like that so they can see um, will make a huge impact and difference if we just keep it going and just keep sharing the word. Um, so kids can make an informed choice about their secondary education. Now I'll remind everyone that you're listening to Wart 89.9 FM, a public affair. And uh, my name is Yuri Rashkin, and we're discussing HBCUs today. And I almost feel like, you know, if you know the answer, what is HBCU? Give us a call. But it's historically black colleges and universities. So we'll just give away the answer right now. And I'm joined by Michelle Hendricks-Nora, who is administrator at Beloit School District and organizer of tours of HBCUs. So this is something we can kind of get a, you know, firsthand experience of Yeshua takes kids there. Oh, that's fascinating and interesting. And, and of course, I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Uh, Melanie Carter, who is Associate Provost and Director of the Center uh, for HBCU Research, Leadership, and Policy. Um, 
Dr. Carter, but as you pointed out, uh, black students, uh, they they make up, they're not 100% of the enrollment. It is not just, you know, for black students at all. Uh, what uh, do you find, uh, um, what brings other students to HBCUs? What is the what is the reasons that you feel HBCUs appeals to not just black students? Well, you know, um, some of what Michelle said earlier in terms of I mean, HBCUs are very much uh committed to issues of equity, um, certainly academic excellence. Um, and so I think the same kind of things that people look for in a college experience, they can find at HBCU. So that, that has historically attracted all kinds of people to attend and be a part of the community. And so I think um, they, they certainly attract. Now, remember, again, some are prof, about half of HBCUs are private um, and half are public. Um, some are, you know, large public institutions. Um, some folks want to attend a state school in their in their area. Um, some people want a private school experience. Some people want a, a school that is known for, you know, a particular academic area, or they want to study with a particular faculty member. And so we have HBCUs that are, you know, known for STEM, the STEM fields, for example, producing uh, graduates in STEM, Howard, for example, and also North Carolina A&T and their others. Or there are schools like Xavier and Howard and others that are known for preparing people to go on to, to medical school. And so there are all kinds of reasons why people choose to attend um, HBCUs, whether they're um, African-American or, or other. We also have historically attracted um, international students, so students um, from across the globe who are interested in studying um, an HBCU, not only um because of um, what they know about the mission of these institutions, but also the kinds of uh, research questions that faculty are engaged in or the kinds of, of work that they're committed to do. Um, HBCUs have a strong history of, of um, nurturing leaders who um, push for change, right? And so those kinds of experiences and those opportunities, I think, are attractive to folks. And people look for institutions um, um, where they can where they can thrive, and so I think they've um, you know historically attracted um, uh, people from all walks of life and continue to do so. And I hope that you, dear listeners, will join us by giving us a call at six zero eight two five six two zero zero one and offer your two cents uh, or three or five or in quarter. Um, what do you think? Is there? Do, do you feel there's a need, there's a room, there's a demand uh, for HBCUs, in your opinion? What is your experience? Um, and uh, just I'd love to hear what you think, because uh, I think this is a topic that is, at the same time, absolutely, as Dr. Carter said, you know, we come in contact with graduates of HBCUs all day long, but uh, I think it's a topic that is uh, not necessarily widely discussed unless, you know, you have somebody like Michelle Hendricks-Nor, who's out there, like, getting kids formed in a group and, and going. Michelle, can you share a little bit of the experience of, of how you get kids to travel? What is the, the trip uh, looks like, feels like, uh, how do kids respond? Because it's great because Dr. Carter provides this kind of the above perspective and, and you're on the ground there, you know, going and checking this out. Mm -hmm. um, yes, absolutely. So um, I believe this is my sister and I's 12th year taking our spring break. And so we just call our tour instead of just saying HBCU tour. So we call it the Rising Knights HBCU College Tour because our mascot is Knights for Purple Knights. And so um, what we do is we open it up to anybody who wants, you know, who wants to attend, um, but that's also um, post, that, that wants to pursue post-education. So we go in as if you want to do a spring break trip and just hang out, this is not a trip for you. We, we want you to be able to look to see that you can go there in that college. So we have them do an application. We do recommendations from a teacher. We check grades, attendance, because we're talking about college-bound students, right? So we do all of that. Um, so we have a selection. So we typically take between 20 and 30 students, a variety. And it's not just African-American students that go. We have an increase of our Hispanic students. We have Caucasian students that join us. Um, so it's open to anyone who wants to experience this or may be interested in these institutions. And so we spend... Um, we start that application in the, in the fall and we spend all school year pretty much fundraising because we have to get there. <laughs> it's not like a little bus ride for us to get there. Um, so it typically costs us with that many people, probably about 45 to 50,000 to get there because we have to fly 
or it's a long train ride or a long bus ride to get there. And if we go so far, we don't stay like two days. And so typically like this upcoming spring, we're visiting seven schools. We go into the Atlanta, South Carolina area. So each year we try to do a different region in a four-year rotation. So if a student is a freshman through a senior, they would never visit the same school twice mm. if they want to go each year. So we try to put it on the rotations. Now, I went to Hampton, so that may be a little more on the rotation. And my sister went to Xavier, so we may add that. We just do <laughs> a little more on the rotation. Um, but we try to make, make it equitable to all schools, but we do love our own um, schools in particular. And then when we get there, we connect them with either people we know from our sororities or just um, people from Beloit that live there or went to school there. Um, we do community service every single time that we go. It's important to learn to give back and have community service hours to their communities. To do that, we visit colleges. We do cultural experiences, whether um, like we took them to the, the Selma Bridge or if we in D.C., of course, there's so many things to do in D.C., um, different things we can't do here, um, Universal Circus, like just different experiences. Um, in, reg in addition to just visiting the colleges. And then we have the tours, we have them eat on campus. Sometimes it's Spring Fest, so they get to see the concerts and the food trucks and all, you know, step shows and all of those different things too as well, instead of just like the hour and a half admission visit. Did we lose sound? Michelle, can, can we hear you? Yep. Okay. okay. Continue. All right. Um, that's, you know, and, and I think that's what's so important. That's so crucial is to have that on the ground experience in 12 years. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a big number. Um, Dr. Carter, your thoughts? I'm impressed. I, you know, certainly familiar with some tours, but for 12 years, and I love the way you um, select the regions and then on a four year cycle, that's extremely, I think it's so important. Um, that students have an opportunity to see, actually, you know, see, touch and feel and experience um, these colleges because um, I do think it is, it's, it really is um, a life-changing experience to actually see it. And then you can make decisions about, you know, where you feel comfortable, where you'll fit in, what college or university is best for you. But it is so important that um, students have an opportunity to actually uh, visit these 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 campuses because they really are um, quite amazing um, places um, and, and college campuses in gen in general I think it's true that it's I think it's so important for young people to visit those and understand that that's going to be a part of their trajectory and what it will take to get there rather than thinking it's pie in the sky or something that is not attainable but in fact you know there are people I remember when I said to my mother um, and it was expected that, um, you know, we would go to college, but, you know, I don't, um, am I going to go? I can't remember where I wanted to go at the time. She's like, well, all the people going there, why can't you? And so I think that by actually folks um, seeing that and, and, and young people um, having the opportunity to go to these places, I think is in, incredibly um, important. So I want to applaud Michelle and your sister and her sister on um, the event. I have a niece and a nephew who graduated from Hampton um, as well. So, <laughs> um, but um, I, I I love um, what she shared. I think it's such a great uh, a great um, uh, effort or um, to 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 do that over over time. And I'm sure the students who um, participated um, really gained gained a whole lot. So it's great. Dr. Carter, uh, what, what do you see as uh, then the challenges that are going forward that are uh, struggles? As it sounds like it's demographics because there's just uh, challenges of people. You know, there's fewer students for everybody. Um, um, is there? Do you find that is a competition for students in terms of them going to different schools or in terms of them not going to higher ed in the first place? Is or is that kind of everybody's different, and and you just and that's how it is. Well, I think you know again, uh, HBCUs. Although we um, have uh, shared missions in some respects, I mean there are themes that cut across all our missions. We are not a homogeneous group of of, of institutions, and so therefore uh, we attract um, students again, diverse students. Who have different interests, different whatever. So I think there's, I think there continues to pull, be a pool of applicants for HBCUs. 
right? I was just at a meeting earlier where they talked about the number of applications um, um, that we received at, at um, Howard. And I know what other um, HBCUs are seeing um, increases in applications. I know some smaller institutions or some other institutions are being cha are challenged, challenged in that area. And that's true also for um, predominantly um, white institutions. But I do think that we're gonna have to continue to make the case, um, which is why Michelle's work is so important, for why uh, uh, HBCU should be on the radar for those people who are continuing or who are, um, are seeking um, um, higher education, that um, we are part of that, you know, uh, the, uh, those that pool of schools that people are considering. Um, and um, I think um, it's important for students and families to do the appropriate research early on, to understand the costs that are involved, to understand, you know, what goes into selecting um, a college uh, for them um, and so forth. So I think it's so important to begin that process early on. I think the HBCUs, um, again, I don't think that they're necessarily suffering um, any more than any other college in terms of enrollment. There are some small schools um, that are HBCUs, just like other, like I like to say, similarly situated schools that are having some challenges. And I think we're, they're going to have to continue to make the, the case, uh, continue to focus on outreach, um, recruitment, attending um, college fairs at high schools and in the areas um, that may not be as familiar with the institutions, um, engaging in partnerships and doing other things, recruiting uh, alumni or engaging alumni in ways that they can speak to the communities and speak to those people who might be interested. And so I think there are a variety of things that HBCUs um, must continue to do um, in order to make sure that, again, they're a part of the pool when um, students and their families are considering higher education. And it's important to recognize that today over 300 students are enrolled in over 100 HBCUs throughout the country. Oh, that's right. Uh, so it remains central. And uh, uh, Michelle, where do you see, are there schools besides the obvious push that you have for your alma maters, yours and Regina's, but um, is there schools that you find that you see some students more gravitate towards? Is there something that they find uh, particularly attractive? You go, oh, we're going to go to this school. They're all going to go for this. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so, I mean, you always have, just like you have your top schools, that's PWIs, that's predominantly white institutions, so you always have the ones that we hear about. So, I mean, you have your Howards, your Hamptons, your Spelmans, your Morehouse, Tuskegee, Xavier, um, so you have all of those, but um, like I tell them too, like Dr. Carter said, those come with a price tag, and a lot of those are private too, and so we want to make sure that we also present schools that um, can be fiscal attainable, um, for them too as well that may be smaller um that still may offer the same opportunities but also comparable to something else up here so they kind of gravitate to the ones in the bigger cities or the one with the big name but that's because they that's what they hear about just like everything else like i, I want to go to north carolina you know uh tar heels well north carolina a and t is over there so they just don't know or have the same exposure some of the other schools so we have our top 10 but what about the other 90 or so hbcus that's out there so um, part of our job in that too is, of course, we hit those big ones, but we also hit the ones that we haven't, you don't really hear about. We just try to kind of look at the map and try to cover the map. You'd be like, okay, well, we're in this town and in the 60 mile radius is three of them. So, we don't, you know, we'll hit all three of them or we'll talk to them because like she said, it, it has to, it has to be right for them. So when we come back home, then the conversation is to our juniors and seniors, what do you think is right for you? It may not be right for your friend. It may not be right to there. Let's look at finances. How much would it cost for you to go in city or to UW-Madison? Okay, how much would it cost you to go for Landry Smith? You may get a full ride. Um, so, you know, just kind of helping the parents navigate that too, because we take a lot of first-generation college students with us. Just helping them navigate. And my sister and I were first-generation college students. So we use what we learn to just help the next generation, because that's what we're supposed to do, um, to help the next generation. And so helping them find what fits them that may not necessarily be what's the most popular or what you hear about, just like any other higher ed institution. Absolutely. I'll just remind everyone that you're listening to Ward 89.9 FM. Uh, my name is Yuri Rashkin. This is a public affair, and uh, we're discussing HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. 
I'm joined by uh, administrator of the School District and uh, champion of HBCUs, <laughs> Michelle Hendricks Nora, and I am also joined by Dr. Melanie Carter, who is associate provost and director for the center at HBCU research leadership and policy at Howard University. Um, I'll just point out a couple. Well, first of all, that you should give us, dear listeners, a call and uh, let us know what you think. Phone number is 608-256-2001. The conversation always gets more interesting when we get phone calls because I just know that I, I can say we have this person on the air, you know, and, and then the inter really interesting questions start. So give us a call. Now I'll share a couple of numbers. 12.5% of CEOs in the U.S. graduated from HBCUs. 80% of black judges graduated from HBCUs. HBCUs pr uh, produced 25% of the country's black STEM graduates. Um, those are pretty impressive numbers. Uh, it, it really feels like HBCUs are making an impact or making a huge amount of difference. Um, uh, Dr. Carter, what do you find uh, encouraging in there among all the, the things that are may not be going as well, but what, what makes you excited about um, HBCUs and um, what what gives you hope for the future? Well, I'm excited that HBCUs have consistently delivered, right? And so um, when we think about, you know, throughout the history of these um, colleges and universities, they've done what they sought to do, which was to educate, educate um, provide an excellent education um, to, to many students who may not have otherwise um, been able to attend, certainly during periods of our nation when it was the, the issues of access and um, opportunity were, were, were particularly um, um, limited um, for groups of people. They certainly, these schools have certainly persevered, persevered. And certainly now, even as people have increased options and, and so forth, they still continue to do the work that they were founded to do. And I think that's impressive. impressive. Any institution, you know, that has the kind of um, sort of staying power um, and the um, consistency in terms of results, I think, um, um, again, is impressive. And so I'm really I continue to be um, encouraged by that and understand in some very specific ways um, the reasons um, for um, HBCUs and why it's so important um, to continue to support them. And something that you all mentioned earlier around, um, I talked about them being certainly critical throughout the nation and the world, but also some of our HBCUs in their communities make all the difference in the world, not only because of um, what they're doing in terms of within the you know physical boundaries of the campus, but also um, in terms of teaching and learning, but also in terms of employers. I mean, HBCUs not only employ faculty, they, they employ, employ staff. They're certainly economic drivers for their community. Um, and so, again, all those things are incredibly important. And so, um, and HBCUs are certainly becoming more and more innovative in terms of their delivery models. There are online programs that are offered at HBCUs. There, Some of them attract um, um, what we used to call um, non-traditional or adult students. I mean, so HBCUs in terms of their ability to be agile, ability to meet the needs of the higher education consumer, um, and also, but at the same time, being grounded um, in terms of, um, we educate far more students who are first generation, I too was first generation, but uh, first generation students, students who are Pell Grant recipients. Um, again, we, we, we educated a disproportionate amount of those students as compared to our uh, uh, predominantly white institutions. And so again, HBCUs are a important space for cultivating people, um, all people, but certainly students who have often been marginalized or who are most vulnerable um, um, in ways that they may not um, have been able um, to have the same kind of access elsewhere. So I'm, I'm encouraged um, by, by HBCUs, the work that we do, and um, you know, I've worked. I've worked at HBCUs for the last, um, oh, I can't even twenty some years. I well longer than that. Actually, I was at Clark Atlanta as a professor, faculty member, for ten years. I left there, been at Howard now for sixteen years ago. Actually, when Different World was filmed at Spelman, I was at Spelman. But I've also, you know, I went to Ohio State. I'm a, a Buckeye through and through. So there, I've had a variety 
of experiences in terms of HBCUs. So I believe in education, period. I think that um, all students it should have access to our education and it should be affordable for them and their families and it should make a difference in their lives. And I think HBCUs are a valuable part of higher education ecosystem that we must all be aware of. I couldn't agree more. And uh, myself uh, being, you know, a Pell Grant recipient and okay, being that part of how I was able to go through undergraduate. And mm -hmm. I, I think that uh, it's, it's crucial. And uh, I think it's a very important point that both of you are making about first generation students and uh, the work there that, that you both are doing. Um, how do you see that uh, going forward as uh, as far as continuing to reach first generation students and uh, and what part of uh, your future recruitment do you find that uh, to be that kind of where does that fit in um, perhaps uh, uh, Melanie uh, Michelle I mean you have how many are there all the students that you're taking there, there can be all first generation students right there's no perfection or are are they no, they're all not. I would say over 90% of them are. <laughs> yeah, over, I would say over 90% of them are. And so over the years, we've probably taken over 200 students. And out of the 200, I think we're like at 92% have actually attended college, which wow. is awesome. So which means you can't just take them on a bus, see seven schools and come home. So it's so much work and a, more work in a background that has to be done to help su support them with that. And you know, with being first generation college students, it can even come down to like, what do I need? Like, how can the city support? Like, how can I get there? So like we've packed them up in our SUVs and drove them to Central State or, you know, met this is what you need. This is how you do this. This is how you come home. But just helping them learn through the whole process of you can do this. And then we see siblings and then we see nieces and then we see cousins and things like that to support. And then we also try to connect them with someone in that community if we can if like we said if it's not someone from beloit then we we reach out because we say um hbcu a black academia is small like it's, it's small and then so it, we always like to remove from somebody at that school especially if you hbcu alum like you can call a couple people i have two kids coming to south carolina to this school can you just help look out for them which helps ease the parents on their end to um and all of that, because I remember when my I went to Virginia, my sister went to New Orleans, and my mom was like, what is this? <laughs> like she, and so we even use her to talk to parents, like, mom, can you meet with this parent to tell her their baby would be okay if we drop them off in North Carolina? Um, so that village support um, around all of it is definitely helps, especially with first generation. Uh, Dr. Carter. Um. In terms of recruitment, I was looking at something in the chat, but in terms of uh, recruitment, um, I think that we, we, we do have to continue to uh, reach out and be intentional about recruitment efforts and to make sure that um, we're reaching, um, you know, the widest population as possible. Um, and that means, um, you know, not only, as you mentioned, Michelle, in the region, but beyond, and really helping um, students and families to understand um, what all of that involves. Um, and one thing um, I think is important is to, you know, and I, I love uh, students and I um, certainly am amazed at what you're doing, Michelle. So, but thinking about, um, you said 20 students? How many do you take at a time? 20 students in seven colleges that I, I'm just shaking, thinking, oh, yeah. I don't know. 30, yeah. okay, we okay. got 28 this year. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I, yeah, I don't I don't know how you do that. But that's a, a it really, really is important. And I think, again, this whole thing of um, building these relationships with these institutions, building relationships with the families and communities, because you send one, then others will follow. Right. People trust institutions once they get to know them. And so if you have a, a series of, 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 you know, several students from high school who went to Central State, that's where I started, Central State, then you'll know more and more people. Oh, well, you know, Melanie went there and her sister went there. So therefore, it's safe. It's OK. We know. If you, so you begin to build webs of support that I think are incredibly important. And that makes it something that's much more attainable to people because it's one thing to send a child someplace when you know you can go and get them. It's another thing when you know you're sending your 18 year old and you believe as a parent that the mercy of the environment, you don't know what that means. 
Um, I always say people call me all the time. And I, I'll, I've been doing this for years. I say, well, you know, I will look at your, I will go to his or her residence hall and look at them. And for a parent, that means a ton. You know, someone's calling, maybe they're just homesick, maybe they're whatever, maybe there's an issue, but I will call and say, yes, I'm looking at her right now. She's in her residence hall. She's okay. That, that makes folks feel tons better. And I think that's um, what HBCUs and some smaller institutions, we do that. We, we understand um, when someone calls and they may seem frantic, but they really just want some assurance, right, that their, their child is safe. And this issue of safety is very important. Um, you know, it's very important that um, these students. I think, especially for first generation students, first generation. when you're when the first one in the family that goes, and that that safety is really, really important. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we had a, a caller who left us with a question but did not stick around, uh, and he asked, did the recent SCOTUS decision, so Supreme Court of the United States decision to overturn affirmative action, change the recruitment strategies at Howard and other HBCUs? We talked a little bit about this earlier, but also I'd like to tack on to this a question. To what, uh, to what extent do you find HBCUs working together? As, as a as a organization is this, is this more of a just like a name or or is there an organization that works uh, those schools are working together to deal with challenges such as uh, decision by Supreme Court um well HBCUs certainly work together in all kinds of ways there are all kind of organizations that work with HBCUs and also I mean, there are this multiple multiple partnerships and so forth but certainly we think about the United Negro College Fund which is Many of you are aware of UNCF, which is um, sort of an umbrella organization that supports HBCUs in terms of, in a whole, a whole, uh, many, many ways. Um, certainly, it sort of began um, in terms of a fundraising arm, but UNCF focuses on private HBCUs. And then we have another organization called Thurgood Marshall College Fund that really um, has the public HBCUs as members. Um, and again, operating in some ways very similar to UNCF. And both really support HBCUs across the board, although their membership is restricted to those areas. And there are all kinds of ways in which HBCUs work together. Um, um, last, earlier this semester in January, I hosted an event on campus with, um, as a part of a conference with the Association of Undergraduate Education at Research Universities and um, um, with HBCUs that are research institutions, which there are 11 of those. And so the research institutions sometimes work in, in with um, um, on a variety of topics. So we have all kinds of connections, partnerships. It's more than just a name or a descriptor. It really is an what I call an HBCU ecosystem of institutions that work together um, on shared interests, shared ideas. They, you know, so and, and also with other institutions. It's not just HBCUs, but a whole range of institutions. So it is certainly more than just a descriptor. Um, and in terms of the SCOTUS decision on affirmative action, um, you know, the decision was 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 narrow in the as it's currently written, certain meaning that they certainly can't use race as the deciding factor in admissions. But certainly there are implications that that may, you know, be used in other ways to extend that decision. Now I can't speak to um, what schools have done exactly in terms of changing their admissions decisions. But again, HBCUs have never um, been exclusive in terms of race. So um, um, I'm sure the various admissions offices and procedures followed um, the decision very carefully and reviewed it to make sure that their processes um, were um, are aligned with what the court, uh, with the court's opinion, um, but I don't anticipate that that will change enrollment. There are some indications we thought early indications, perhaps, that it will affect the number of really high achieving students, students who are um, tired of the um, extreme scrutiny um, on their already, um, you know, stellar academic records at some of these other institutions. And so there's some thinking that that will increase the number of those students um, who apply to HBCUs. Well, the numbers aren't out yet. The data's not in, but we'll see. We'll see if students who um, 
you know, um, might have chosen um, another school um, in the past, they may choose some um, HBCUs because, again, although they know that they're highly qualified and extremely competitive, that this um, continued scrutiny and questioning of their academic record and their capacity and their competitiveness may have grown old. Okay, so we're, we're going to check for that to see if that if that is the case. That is an interesting possibility. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we have a few remaining minutes uh, with our wonderful guests, uh, Dr. Carter and uh, Michelle Hendricks-Nora, discussing HBCUs. I, I should point out that uh, just this past month, Spelman College received historic $100 million donation, the largest single gift to any HBCU, and this is uh, to uh, promote uh, to, uh, educational institutions, uh, black women in science, technology, engineering, Engineering and math. Um, what what does that mean uh, to you, uh, Dr. Carter? And uh, uh, and how does everybody else feel about this? I was thrilled um, when I learned of that gift. I think it's amazing. I was actually uh, again aged myself working at Spelman when they had the uh, the largest gift they had received at that time, which was about twenty million. So you know, some thirty years later, or really more, um, to see the hundred million is extremely exciting and how host a range of possibilities for the institution for um, Black um, women in the STEM field. So I think it's exciting. And it really does um, demonstrate um, uh, how important it is to invest in the HBCU. So um, I was thrilled um, and, and continue to be thrilled about what will come from that gift. Michelle, what do you think? Should uh, should there be set up some kind of foundation to bring people to HBCUs like you're doing? I, I don't know. What do you think? Proud of that? Absolutely. You know, millions However, of dollars. Yes, millions. Please. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, you can support in you know in any way possible. People donate time, locations, or support while they're there. I think it was very um, that. I mean, we, we want to do the work, but sometimes the work costs money and investment is actually your fiscal dollars in the support. And so um, if people can support that way or just help and educate, um, just share, it'll be awesome for our students. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I'm really excited to have been joined by uh, Michelle Hendricks-Nora today, who is administrator at Deloitte School District, and uh, Dr. Melanie Carter, who is associate provost and director of the Center for HBCU Research, Leadership, and Policy at Howard University. Um, and uh, we discussed today historically black colleges and university and the impact uh, they have uh, on our country that they've had in the past, that they have, that they continue to have uh, in the future. And uh, I, I think it's really exciting that uh, you've been able to join me today on this program. Thank you to you, uh, Michelle and Melanie. Thank, thank you. For the thank you so much. And I want to thank uh, Jay Davis, who is the sound engineer today. And I want to thank Jay DeSeri Ramos, who helped produce this show. And I want to thank everyone who was with us today listening. And uh, uh, especially caller Steve, who did not hang on the line, but did ask a great question. So thank you very much. Uh, you're listening to WORT, a public affair. My name is Yuri Rashkin. Take care. We'll see you next time.